0: The Liberating Arts seeks to articulate the enduring relevance of a liberal arts education during a time of pandemic and protest. Through our online platform, we will host a series of conversations with writers, academics, institutional leaders, and public intellectuals about the nature of the liberal arts, their formational purpose, and their moral significance in a time of great cultural disruption. We hope to inspire viewers and listeners to learn more about the liberating effects of these arts on their own lives. To find out more, please visit www.theliberatingarts.org or find us on Twitter, Facebook, Spotify, or YouTube. Well, hello, it is such a pleasure. Uh, We are being joined today by Dr. Rob Jackson, and I'm gonna give you a little bit of background on him. As a professor of English and education at the King's College in New York, Dr. Jackson spent a dozen years training future teachers in the rudiments of educational history and philosophy. In 2006, he developed an academic concentration aimed at revitalizing the 2,500 year tradition of liberal arts pedagogy through the study of classic works such as Quintilian, Erasmus, and many more. He has actively integrated poetry in his educational courses and his research focuses on the early 20th century debates between progressives and classicists concerning public schools. His articles and essays have been published in Society, Academic Questions, Myth, Lore, and Comment. He was the recipient of a university fellowship at Florida State University and received awards for teaching excellence at Florida State University and the King's College. Prior to joining Great Hearts, his administrative experience also included the oversight of two university language programs, Florida State University, State University of New York at New Paltz, and coordination of a childhood education degree at the King's College and service as the Associate Provost of the King's College. So thank you so much, Rob, for joining us today. And I just want Oh, yes. I just wanted to clarify that your current position is as Chief Academic Officer at Great Hearts Academies and Director of its Institute for Classical Education. So the reason that I wanted, I was very eager for you to come and join us at the Liberating Arts um, is because as you know, we have been really thinking about the liberal arts and the liberal arts tradition and what can be done, you know, to really um, shore up its future. And you have this this very unique um, position within classical education. And so I wanted to start out with, so you've had a distinguished career at both the university and K-12 administrative levels within schools that have a classical approach to education. But I'm aware that many of our listeners may not be familiar with this idea of classical education. And so I was hoping you could give us a better sense of what classical education is.
1: You bet. Well, thank you, Angel. This is a pleasure for me to to join you and your listeners. And it has, in fact, been uh, something of an adventure uh, as I have come through the ranks of the professorate and uh, worked in higher education for uh, for more than 15 years before joining Great Hearts, uh, now uh, eight years ago this summer. And I, I think it is important for us to Uh, get clarity around this definition. Uh, Classical education is something that that I would identify with a bit of renewal, uh, even a renaissance or a recovery uh, of a form of education that that really does harken back millennia. Uh, Depending on where you start the clock, whether with Greeks or with those Roman codifiers, or even the great sweep of uh, the Middle Ages and certainly into the the Renaissance as we know it in Europe, uh, a great many strains uh, or themes or motifs in education can be found uh, that that we take in under the umbrella of classical education. So while it may begin in the classical period in antiquity, it's something that is genuinely organic It is, uh, in that sense, alive, a great movement uh, across humanity, and very much um, ecumenical, uh, non sectarian, though influenced by religion in many, many ways, uh, but very cosmopolitan, if I may use the word, because of the ways in which uh, that philosophical outlook of Athens uh, in the uh, fifth century BC, fourth and fifth century BC. Uh, the the legal and Republican, small r Republican form of government, uh, not to mention the administrative capacities of Rome, right, in its heyday. And most certainly of Jerusalem uh, as uh, the giver of the Decalogue and this great religious tradition of thought concerning the ways in which, uh, in fact, I would say even prior to Socrates, we had this sort of Midrash uh, experience of the questioning of the highest, of the ideals of the transcendental. So when I look to Greece uh, or Athens, perhaps specifically Rome and Jerusalem, these three great classical cities are also a part of something that moves right on in and through uh, uh, time and across time and and across the globe to bring influence uh, to, to what we would describe as the classical form of education. I think fundamentally, It looks for that continuity over time around essential features of what makes a human human. Our rational capacities and the ability to uh, give shape to our affections so that we are drawn to or attracted to the good, to the beautiful, right? That our pursuit of truth is that which drives us but always in relation to ourselves and the community which we inhabit. Uh, The continuity, thus, is uh, truth, goodness, and beauty, as is often spoken of in our in our circles in classical education. But those, those, those things, those realities are embodied. They're embodied in some of the greatest, uh, as as one author puts it, the best that has ever been thought or said. right? This is Matthew Arnold from the, from the 19th century. Uh, son of a great schoolmaster uh, and defender of this liberal educational tradition, they're always embodied in what might be referred to as good or great books uh, or good or great works of art. Uh, they are the product of human beings, uh, and we find it again across the globe and uh, regardless of uh, you know of 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 sex or ethnicity. Uh, regardless of where one comes from, the Greeks were were quick on this when they said the difference between the Greek and the barbarian, simply meaning that, that one who is outside, is whether they've been made Greek, <laughs> whether they have been civilized, right? And again, that might be a Greek way of thinking, but in some sense, our classical tradition says that's a way of thinking about what it means to be fully human. To be fully human, one comes into a tradition, is received into a tradition, is cultivated, right? by these embodied works, by these uh, manifestations of excellence. And then I would say, and and I was hinting at it a moment ago, I would say that the classical tradition uh, is very, if I may use the term Aristotelian, and this of course, I make reference to Aristotle, but primarily because of his depiction of virtue. He and his teacher Plato believed that there were ways in which human beings could be made full made more full, made more fully human, if you will, as they approached excellence in areas like courage and temperance, the pursuit of justice, uh, developing a kind of magnanimity, right, towards towards one's peers and others. Uh, But I say the excellence that we would probably translate as virtue is always accompanied by a practical wisdom. There is no checkbox to becoming fully alive. There are certainly certain ways in which we should uh, uh, consider the pursuit of courage, but courage has to be acted out by the individual in a particular time, in a particular place, particular circumstances. So there's a real dynamism, right, to uh, to the working out of what it means to be fully human. And I can't tell you, just as you can't tell me, exactly what that's going to look like in my or your specific circumstances.
0: So let me- and I love it
1: in... Um, yeah go
0: ahead please I was just gonna say if I could just summarize a bit is that we could think yep. of classical education as the study of the liberal arts with this mm. goal of cultivating wisdom and virtue um, and it's anchored in this tradition um, of Athens and Jerusalem um, and so that would be kind of a, a snapshot for thinking about it but you know key in what I heard you say is this idea of formation right and Cultivating the affections um, or the desire for what is good and what is virtuous—that's right. That's essential to our understanding. And so, I wanted to just give you. So, how did you get into this form of education? You know, it's 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 still very unusual for people to do this this kind of classical education. And I'm just I'm interested. In what brought you to this kind of work?
1: Well, at the heart of it, I was always hungry for more. Uh, as an educationist myself, one who went into graduate study of uh, education, one of the large research one universities down south, uh, I had always longed to find something more historically grounded. And while I have nothing but respect for my uh, professors and those who uh, initiated me into uh, the, the graduate uh, the world of graduate studies, there was still always a piece missing. It was after I finished or completed my PhD uh, that I joined a small upstart liberal arts college in New York, the King's College. And under the influence of really just a handful of mentors and guides, I was able to explore and give full voice, uh, full expression, right, to this quest to find the historical continuity. And it was there at the King's College that I was given oversight of an educational program that program quickly, within the first five years, moved towards the classical formation. And that's where I uh, was given, uh, you know, sort of the, uh, the, the room to grow, if you will, and to expand and do my research, uh, while at the same time, of course, teaching undergraduates who would eventually become a part of a school, um, uh, would become a part of the, the classical movement as teachers. Um, I I also would have to say that it was those like-minded colleagues that I found at that institution, the King's College, because so much depends on a concentration of talent where you can gather with others and share these ideas. Uh, That was very important for my development and not a little serendipity uh, when I eventually uh, uncovered the work of Great Hearts Academies. I thought it was a, I thought it was a shimmer, uh, you know, sort of a, uh, was it some sort of oasis in the desert, right? But maybe just a maybe just a, ma- a mirage uh, when I first heard of it from, from some of my students at the time, uh, coming out to visit the schools, I was uh, fully impressed and realized this, I need to be a part of in some way, shape or form.
0: I'll follow up on some of what you said about going from, you know, an R1 graduate program feeling like something was missing and then getting connected with the King's College and then having this room to really kind of expand and grow. I'm really interested particularly in that transition um, because Mm -hmm. so you studied English. And what's Mm -hmm. very interesting is that I actually started out as an English major uh, in Mm -hmm. undergrad um, and I was fully intending to become an English professor. And I, changed my mind because i saw the way that english was being taught that english literature was being taught. there were just for me the kind there at the time of psychoanalytic theories and you know other kinds of theory. Mm-hmm. i felt mm-hmm. like even as an 18 or 19 year old i felt like this was a kind of forced type of um analysis and i shifted into sociology from there and so I'm just really curious for you, you know, when you say something was missing, um, as this starts to get at, um, you know, the training of graduate students in the liberal arts, so what was the difference between how you were trained and, you know, what it is you were really longing for that you got once you were at the King's College?
1: Mm. Well, I would say, first of all, just for clarification, my area of interest was English and English education with an international emphasis. So I was literally working with international students while at, uh, at my university. Uh, but to your question, I would say that much of what I witnessed in that school of education uh, was a kind of uh, development of technique, uh, a development of analysis of the classroom. Uh, and when it came to text or cultural uh, artifacts. It was essentially a, a relativistic view that there, there, wasn't, there, there weren't to be considered those things which were higher or that certain cultural artifacts were in fact better than others, uh, but rather a, a broad cultural relativism. And then of course, my colleagues who were coming directly from English literature programs would describe for me the types of uh, analytic and theoretical uh, 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 um, apparatus uh, that they were using uh, to essentially deconstruct some of that, of course, also uh, laid claim to to the school of education, and I found it I found it unsatisfying in part because I just had a, a a hunch, kind of a gut instinct, that there was something better about Plato as contrasted with some 20th century philosopher who was musing. Uh, in, in speculative ways uh, about situational ethics. I found Plato and Aristotle, for example, far more compelling in their depiction of what the human was, was, was made to do uh, as a rational creature, for example, right? Or as it related to the literature, I found Virgil or Homer before him uh, to be far more compelling than, than many of the, uh, the narratives uh, that were ostensibly promoting a destruction of the of the grand narratives of the epics right of the past that that gave some kind of arc to our human experience uh, some sort of you know develop even if it's tragic in the Greek sense, uh, at least there's a sense in which we get to a place where we understand our nature better uh, the the deconstructive and some of the other theoretical apparatus seem to me to um, to sort of disparage that we could really get to uh, the heart of what it means to be human. And so with the great works, I was attracted, and the, the gut instinct was there's something good about them. And when I saw them, in a sense, dismissed or, or or considered passe. And this is of course before there's an active animus, or maybe it was there, but I didn't detect it. Today we, you know, to, to speak of the West is 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 almost you know that's anathema. Uh, but this was at a time in the '90s where you might speak of it, but it just seemed so passe, and that didn't seem right to me. This didn't settle well with me. And Kings gave me a chance to to pursue with gusto uh, a tradition that I considered uh, noble or honorable.
0: Hmm. So yeah, that's the, the clarification is helpful to know that you were so you were in the School of Education. Then? I
1: was okay. Yep.
0: Yes, and so that's perfect actually for my next question. As I was interested in knowing, what are uh, some of the factors that led to the transition from a classical model of education to today's form of education, which some would call progressive education, which arose Mm -hmm. um, at the beginning of the 20th century. And then also how did that transition affect the study of the liberal arts and judgments about the desirability of the study of the liberal arts?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I, I would discover, after my graduate training, uh, the works uh, of John Dewey. Now, again, he had been referenced and excerpted uh, in, in the School of Education, but I hadn't read him in full, and as I would spend more time with complete works, uh, I would discover that voices like John Dewey, among others, uh, that we typically associate with the pragmatic school of philosophy, our only American homegrown school of philosophy, were in fact turning away from uh, the traditional form uh, for a variety of reasons, which we could get into. But I think at, at heart, they saw it as lacking in efficacy, right? That in some sense, the classical liberal education of the Henry Adamses of the world, uh, whom himself questioned if there was much value to it, right? Here's a, a Harvard man, right? Raised and, and essentially given every opportunity. And he questioned, although he did so very eloquently, he questioned the value, right, uh, of a liberal education. Uh, And I think John Dewey, William Kilpatrick, many of his colleagues there at Columbia University at the turn of the century, 1920s, 1930s, uh, began to question whether this uh, traditional form of the Latin grammar school and uh, that formative experience in in grammar and secondary grades uh, that was contingent on a familiarity with uh, a corpus, right? A, a set of of classical or great books, that this was somehow outdated, and had little to do with what was needed, again in the early 20th century here in America, which was primarily the preparation of of industrial workers, right? And the continued expansion and growth uh, of the industrial complex before the military was added on, <laughs> after uh, you know in in the uh, in the wake of of World War One and Two, of course. Um, I think that there's a there's always a deep strain of kind of utilitarian uh, purpose in the American experience, uh, which goes back to the 19th century. There were debates over whether uh, the colleges, uh, largely colleges at that point, university model doesn't come in until the late 19th century, as you know, and is adopted from Germany, but the college model, which is largely liberal, uh, which is largely focused on just essential readings and essential coursework that everyone takes, common stock, if you will, common, common, uh, a commons, right for for the educated, but again, very elite because just the smallest percentage of the population will even partake of that. Uh, the utilitarian trend comes in uh, under the influence of of those like Jefferson and others. He himself well educated and liberally educated, but he's asking himself what what do we need to do to prepare the next generation, and we have. Certainly the, the sort of um, agricultural and mechanical universities, the A&Ms uh, of our nation and the Land Grant, uh, Morris Land Grant uh, Act later in that century, which are trying to set up universities that will have some of this technical utility to prepare farmers, uh, to prepare merchants, to prepare uh, the industrial magnets uh, of the future. So that utilitarian trend is at at, at, uh, at least creating some pressure if not some tension. Uh, with the, the more typical or stock liberal uh, model, liberal arts model, um, and then I would say that when it comes to K-12 schools, uh, especially as the high school model really does emerge in the in the first half of the 20th century, we're dealing with large urban centers and an increasing kind of industrial metaphor for how do we deal with the thousands and tens of thousands of students who are now uh, you know, sort of on the streets, as it were, as the cities, as they come from the country or they come from the other side of the Atlantic, right, in waves of immigration, uh, where we're not sure what to do. You know, the, the, the sort of leaders of the age are asking themselves, how do, we, how do we keep the peace and law and order and so forth if we don't educate this, this, uh, this, this you know, this incoming, these, these cohorts of young people? Some of them, of course, you know, if they aren't in school, they're going to be form form gangs or maybe get into trouble and so forth. So there's a lot of a kind of a social, uh, I don't want to call it a social uh, 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 net, but there's a there's a sense in which we're trying to socialize or otherwise assimilate uh, these these uh, these immigrants as well at that time. So there's a number of pragmatic and practical questions along with a kind of utilitarian bent to prepare the workforce uh, that begins to push hard. Into uh, both uh, secondary education and certainly in time uh, post-secondary or what we would call college or university education, and I think that's part of what has, um, yeah, more than a century later, has in many ways displaced, uh, or or at least is is, is hard with its elbows uh, on the liberal the liberal portion of education, which we now typically find in maybe general requirements, right, in the first two years of an undergraduate's program. But uh, but even there, it's kind of a it, it is often sadly a grab bag, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. There's not a core experience of uh, of liberal education that is shared by all uh, uh, in in that in that uh, in those first couple of years, let alone the four-year college experience. And I'll give you one very practical example. But the liberal colleges of yesteryear, and here I'm talking about the 18th and 19th century, some of our you know most prestigious institutions. They used to have the the college president back when these were very small institutions, would have numbered you know a hundred or or a few hundred. Uh, they would have the college president offer a senior level capstone course on moral philosophy, moral philosophy, right, in order to equip and prepare those uh, near to graduating seniors for the questions of the day, how to address and become uh, rightful leaders in society because of, because of the questions that they would need to address as leaders. Uh, that strikes me as, as just, I mean, it's a thing of the past, right? But it's a deeply liberal uh, value that was understood 200 years ago that I think we may talk about leadership today, but I can't imagine a college president, <laughs> certainly at a big university, offering a moral philosophy course, right, to, to address the most pressing questions. Yeah, maybe, no. maybe maybe it'll make a comeback. I don't know.
0: <laughs> maybe. Um, so I first actually came across that that you know practice of college presidents um, of all mm-hmm. places in a book by sociologists. So this was right? in, um, the appendix to Habits of the Heart by Robert Bella yeah. and several other mm-hmm. sociologists. And in that appendix, um, it talks about social science as public philosophy. And it makes this mm-hmm. argument for a social scientist to engage in public philosophy um, and Mm. that model of, you know, before there was this kind of rigid segregation between the disciplines, that there was more of this opportunity for kind of synthesizing and and bringing together, you know, what are the lessons that we're learning and how does that relate to the common good and to our life together? And you know, it was really actually in reading that, um, I had read Habits of the Heart before, but in rereading it and reading that appendix, now I think that's about, um, how long ago was that? Maybe eight years ago or so, mm-hmm. uh, was mm-hmm. eight or nine years ago. That was part of what really turned the tide for me in terms of really um, thinking in a different way about my discipline and the kind of work mm. that I do and it was about that time that my children were getting into classical education and so mm-hmm. of those things really enriched and deepened my understanding of the intellectual life so it's, it's mm. been a really important discovery for me as well so today the liberal arts you know as you know are under increasing fire as being irrelevant and you know often considered to be elitist and you know, colleges are losing many majors in the liberal arts uh, and you, know, you see cuts also to um, liberal arts programs and departments. And so I wonder, um, what would you say would be your major concerns if we continue in this direction where there is less and less room for an emphasis on the liberal arts? What, what's at stake? Mm.
1: Yeah, I, I think you probably heard me allude to it there a few moments ago, when I said without a common experience or something more common among uh, collegians undergraduates. I think we stand to lose a great deal, namely some sense that we are uh, and, and for our young right for the 18, 19, for the 20 year olds who are just taking their majority right they're coming into their own. They recognize they are taking on the responsibilities of adulthood. And without something more significant or substantive by way of liberal education, I believe we will have a lack of clarity of thought. Increasingly, we will find our public square fraught with the kind of ideological you know, mudslinging that's just all too common uh, because there's very little of the breadth required to see and to empathize or at least sympathize with one's opponent, uh, there needs to be, uh, you know, without that liberal education, uh, I think we're gonna see increasing uh, amounts of this uh, echo chamber like uh, sort of, uh, uh, again, ideological divide where we just, we go into these opposite directions and we, we oppose one another with, with vitriol and uh, I think we're going to lack the civility that is so necessary uh, to sustain this this republic, this constitutional republic. I, I suspect it's going to get worse before it gets better. Now, mind you, I'm always hopeful. I'm hopeful in part because of what we are, what, what you and I have come to understand is, in fact, a liberal education. Uh, we came to it differently, right, by a different, by different avenues, as it were, but, but sort of, came upon the same core or center, uh, a humane form of education, one that teaches the young to be thoughtful and measured, to be civil and careful in what one says in order to give, in fact, uh, not straw man arguments right, of one's opponent, but uh, what we might call sterling or gold-plated arguments, right, considering what the other would say in the best instantiation of their of their position. Um, ultimately, you know, quite honestly, in this moment, when everyone speaks of justice, usually with the adjective uh, social in front of it, I'm thinking that we will not reclaim justice, or at least the pursuit thereof, uh, apart from this form of liberal education. I think that, again, we'll, we'll give lip service, we'll give, you know, we'll speak of justice, but we will lack the necessary courage, the temperance, and certainly the prudence these being the cardinal virtues, as as you well know, uh, to effect justice, which should be uh, everyone's pursuit, right uh, in 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 our in our society. So I think we have a lot to lose. I mean, I don't mean to sound hyperbolic; that wouldn't be liberal of me. But I I, I am concerned that uh, that we're not we're not paying close enough attention to uh, to what is lost by not having a, a genuinely liberal shared educational experience for our young, especially, again, as they come into adulthood.
0: Yeah. So I, I'm going to just try to probe a little more into that. So some sure. of the things that you talked about at stake are losing civility, being in a kind of echo chamber um, not thinking as carefully and, um, you know, not echo chamber echo chamber. Sorry about that. But, uh, you know, what, what specifically is it about liberal education that makes one say more civil, more willing to be gracious in listening to one's opponents? You know, and I ask specifically because those who criticize this, this idea of liberal education or who don't see it as being necessarily very important or who see it worse as being elitist, You know, Mm -hmm. say what it just reinforces already existing inequalities. So how in the world is it going to make us come together, be more civil, be more willing to listen to others, be more empathetic? You know, when some Mm -hmm. of us are reading Plato and Aristotle and, you know, others of us who are shut out of these opportunities, you know, are are going to hardly have time to read anything at all.
1: It's a, it's a fair question, and I appreciate the, the clarification. Um, I would want to point back to um, the notion, uh, and I'm thinking here of, of Socrates in his interaction in the Mino, where he br- brings along uh, alongside, now the question at the heart of that, of that dialogue is, can virtue be taught? Right? Is virtue actually something that we can transmit or in other ways cultivate uh, among, among the young in particular? And, uh, and it seems such a thorny question. It's not as easy as it appears. It's, it's not you know, the superficial answer that we can just indoctrinate or uh, that we can otherwise you know, coerce uh, a child and then a young person into being virtuous. Uh, Socrates is pretty quick to dispense with those and say it won't work that way. I promise you it won't. But before he gives up on or you know throws in the towel as we might say, he then turns to his interlocutor and says, "But, but it is possible, and let me show you." And then proceeds to provide uh, with what is effectively an uneducated servant right there standing by a young a young man. Uh, A geometric proof to show that every human being, right, regardless of social class, has the capacity to recollect or to see these truths which we as human beings have the capacity to to, to apprehend. And what I love about that episode, again, Socrates is very much on the margins, right? We discover early in the writings of Plato that he's not just a gadfly or, you know, we might say a pain in the backside, uh, but he's always sort of getting in people's way. And ultimately, you know, it is his undoing. He's, he's executed, right, uh, for accusations that he's introduced false gods or impieties for the young. Uh, while he, he claims, Socrates claims, to only be Concerned with the pursuit of truth and acknowledges his own ignorance repeatedly, right? Uh, 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 He's fully aware that he doesn't have all the answers. And in the Mino, he does this, again, where he admits what he can't say with confidence, or at least uh, certainty, and then turns and offers essentially uh, uh, an indirect proof, Uh, again, using uh, geometry to show that we all have it in us. Right? With just a series of questions and a little bit of probing, it's there. We know these things to be true if we can, if we can explore uh, th- that, that knowledge that resides within us. Now, I say all this because uh, to your question, I see the liberal tradition as truly freeing. I mean, that's simply uh, restating it differently with a different word, that word liberal. Is where we where we derive the word free, the freedom that we so desperately desire in this age, and I would suggest in any age, right, as human beings, is to be found by the full exercise of our faculties. And this tradition has over literally over millennia, right? If you want to start back with Homer, right, it's sort of the the great. Epicist, right, of our tradition, then you're almost 3,000 years running, and certainly if we want to go back and speak of that, uh, the contribution of Jerusalem, then we're definitely into three or more millennia, and to speak of a tradition that encompasses all of those elements and serves them up for the common man, right, this has always been, by the way, especially in the modern, you know, the last two centuries or so, always been at the heart of great books programs, and I'll remind your listeners that people like Mortimer Adler and, uh, at the time, Robert Hutchins at the University of Chicago, but Adler in particular uh, was always deeply concerned, very much kind of in a socialist spirit. I even identified, I believe, as a socialist at various intervals, uh, was concerned that this, this tradition be given to the common man, that it was never intended to be merely for the aristocracy and that there was to be a true democratization of our nation, of our society, then we needed to get the best ideas, as I said early on in our conversation, to everyone. And so I, 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 I know that was a bit of a rambly answer, but I look at Socrates and see him right there on the common man's level. And then I see someone like Mortimer Adler, again, I don't mean to name drop, but here's a, an advocate for great books uh, uh, curricula uh, from the 20th century, who's very much concerned that this is for the working man and the common man. Um, now we can go into more detail if you wish, but but those are those are my sort of markers, both at the front end and here closer to our, our moment, for those who who were determined not to allow uh, the great tradition to be an elitist uh, project.
0: No, well, I think that's perfect. I think that's beautifully said. You know, and I think it is. It's wonderful to remind people. I don't know how familiar our listeners will be with Mortimer Adler, but they can. Um, they can always Sorry,
1: I had I my we're, we're on spring break so my children are in the background giving us a little bit of uh, echo effect there.
0: <laughs> don't worry. No worries at all. So um, yeah, but I think it is good to remember more and more Adler's project um, and he was very very concerned as you say for the common person the working person and so I think that's right on. So I wanted to move on to um, something else. So most educators specialize either at the college level or at the K-12 level, but you have extensive experience with both. And so I wondered if you could speak to um, what we have to gain by having a more cohesive K through 16 vision of education rather than what we have now where you have, you know, very cohesive, well, I won't say very cohesive, but, you know, thinking in terms of K-12 and then that's pretty separate from what you're going to get at college or university. What what does a more cohesive K-16 vision look like? And what, what do we gain from that?
1: Yeah, I, I, I firmly believe that if we could uh, provide a greater integration between what we do in elementary and secondary grades and what then is experienced by uh, young collegians, undergraduates, we would, we would be able to ramp up and and sort of move at a pace that has been gone or lost to us, perhaps for for decades at the very least. Uh, I don't think that there was a golden era in American education. I never try to sort of look back, you know, to when it was the you know the, the 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 best and the greatest. But I think there there was throughout the early maybe the first half of the 20th century still the residual expectation, you know, that language learning, including some of those ancient languages like Latin. Grammatical care, logic and rhetoric, history, a tradition understanding of of how do we read the historical record, um, how do we understand economics, civics, the whole gamut, along with mathematics and the sciences, which are this constantly evolving uh, representation of the physical and the empirical that we're that we're constantly observing. All of this was considered part and parcel of again elementary and secondary education, and. Of course, prior to the Second World War, most of this is still, you know, that's about as far as folks went. To get an eighth grade education, you know, back in 1920 would have been probably pretty average, right? So after the Second World War and certainly the GI Bill and a host of other things that have come down to us over the last 70 years, it's now assumed that college is, is just an essential. Uh, it's just a rite of passage, right, into adulthood. Um, and uh, we can talk about whether that's, in fact, uh, fair uh, or should, in fact, be our aspiration, but it is clear. It is clear to me, as I just said a few moments ago, that a liberal education should, in fact, be the province of, of every young person. So I think one of the advantages of more of a K-16 outlook, to use your, your formulation, would be that we could get through in high school, right, if given, certainly if given 13 years, K-12, to a full suite and a full sort of uh, experience of liberal education, we could get through what in many ways today, from what I gather and from what I'm able to glean of, of my colleagues in higher ed, what is in fact done typically in the first couple of years of college, those, those general requirements. I suspect we could actually prepare uh, students, our graduates at classical schools, to be two or three years ahead of their peer group simply by dint. Of the kind of coverage and the kind of content and the sort of full suite of studies that they're that they're receiving in high school and before, right, middle and high school for certain, but but a solid uh, elementary experience, which is formative, formative for their imaginations, which I don't want to give short shrift to. I don't want to think of this as I just got done sort of decrying the utilitarian bent. I don't want to describe uh, you know secondary classical education strictly in terms of college readiness. It's it's far more than that. I'm even suggesting that you know, college, as we see it today, at least in many institutions of higher education, is often remedial. It's remedial. And that, that's actually just, that's empirical, right? 50% or more of incoming freshmen nationwide are going to have some kind of mathematical and or um, language remediation, right? For their writing, for their numeracy. Um, we can obviously overcome that if given opportunity in most cases. Therefore, when the graduates matriculate, I think we have an incredible opportunity to really move forward or to advance liberal education at the collegiate level in a way that has not been done at least in mass or in any kind of scale uh, for quite some time. That the college graduate, sorry, that the college, the matriculated college freshmen from one of these classical schools uh, that you and I are are a part of uh, could quite honestly enter not only with with greater uh, skill in writing, in numeracy, in in an understanding of the sciences, the whole suite of of liberal education, but could advance more quickly and I think gain more from the college experience uh, than their uh, non-classically trained counterpart. Now, that's, again, I'm just making a generalization here, but I, but I want to be clear that I think that college uh, is, in fact, a, ideally, college is an opportunity to take liberal education that's been given at the secondary level and expand it, not to be the first time that a young person experiences liberal education. In fact, at that point, it may often be too little too late, right, at, uh, at, if, if the college that uh, the, the freshmen encounter is their first experience with a truly liberal education. I think we're gonna see a kind of bifurcation, a divide between those uh, who number now in the few thousand, right, we have graduates from from classical schools across the country, between their quality and their ability to enter and compete at the college level and w- I would just consider their peers, right, who come from, again, non-classical backgrounds. I think these these young people are going to be better equipped to really pursue higher education as as I as I believe it was intended to be. Um, and in some cases, quite honestly, they're just going to skip ahead. If there's nothing there at the university or college level to really deepen their understanding, they're probably just going to jump right into those upper level classes, upper division classes, and begin their begin study of their major, right? Which is essentially preparation for uh, for a career. So. Now that's, that, I, as I say all of this, by the way, Angel, as I say all of this, I'm thinking to myself, that's not necessarily um, the hopeful measure or the hopeful suggestion that we can, you know, sort of rebuild it. I, I actually think there's an alternative here, which we could get into, which considers that if you had an entire institution, a college or university that was working with students like those who come from the classical schools that you and I are affiliated with, we might be able to do something at another level or another sort of order of magnitude that hasn't been done for some time. So that's I'll just put that over there as an aside.
0: Sure. And and of course, we do have some of those colleges, right, that that's are right. very that's right. classically oriented, either all four years or, you know, uh, a classical core for two years and then a, a major. So we are seeing some of that um, and including some new colleges, which is very interesting. Right. So I wanted to ask a question specifically about great hearts. And I'm wondering how easy or difficult has it been to families and to get them to really, you know, buy into sending their children there, you know, because as we've been discussing, this idea of classical education is is somewhat foreign, you know, to the, the average person. And so I'm just wondering, you know, do do the parents, do they really deeply buy into this idea of classical education or You know, do do they just have a sense that this is a high quality school and so I'm going to send my child? Mm -hmm. I'm just interested in that that recruiting aspect.
1: Sure. Well, I I do think uh, as with any endeavor of of size or scale, it is a mixed constituency. You know, you might have um, 25, even upwards of 30%, depending on the school and the community of families who really buy in, as you put it, who really get it and are there because they understand this classical form is extraordinary. It's a recovery, it's a renewal. And probably a majority, maybe even upwards of two thirds of the families are attracted, as you just pointed out, by the success of that academy of the upper school, uh, the secondary school's graduates, that they uh, perform so very well on measurements, uh, standardized measures, uh, college admissions, uh, that they're getting into universities and colleges across the country, the most selective institutions of higher education. This all bodes well, right? This is a, this is a, a, a certainly a feather in the cap of these classical schools. And at Great Hearts, uh, we, we are certainly a part of that uh, movement and a part of the communication to families to express to them why uh, this form matters and how it works. Um, but you've got at least a majority. Right, That you're, you're constantly working to cultivate and educate, quite honestly, because as you say, uh, for many of us, uh, we, many, many of our families, many of us didn't even have this form of education uh, in our formative years. So it's foreign to us, it's not, it's not lived experience. But that being said, I think that families, uh, and again, this is, this is sort of my, my mantra generally, I think if we can appeal Uh, to families on what we do share in common and what we understand to be notions of of goodness and certainly excellence and quality, Uh, I think they can, in fact, be brought to see that this is just something we've misplaced or set aside for some period of time. And when they take a closer look, or when we encourage them to allow their students, their children, to take a closer look, uh that 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 is its uh that has its own kind of selling point so i would say that getting into schools if we're trying to communicate to the to the parents the quality of this form of education letting them walk the school halls letting them see the manners and the mores of our of our classrooms and of our hallways letting them see that we take virtue seriously but in a very joy-filled fashion uh, letting them acknowledge that when we read these books from yesteryear, we do so with an eye on what it means to us today, so that the conversation around old classics is is perennial. I mean, it speaks to perennial questions of what it means to be human. And if they have opportunity to see that uh, at work, you know, take them into the classroom, ideally. If they have opportunity to ask those questions, honest and fair questions, uh, then they can be assured especially if they decide to place their student in one of our schools, they can be assured, this is for everyone, this is for their student as it is for uh, you know, the, the, the parents of, of, of a child of greater means or what have you, because again, these are very much, uh, if I may, a democratizing influence right, in the communities where we operate, because it is in fact uh, by state mandate, both in Texas and Arizona where we operate, uh, this is by lottery. Anyone can enter one of our schools uh, and is welcome so uh, there's no, there's no, um, you know, tuition price point barrier. It's not a question of which zip code you come from. Uh, we welcome any and all students.
0: Hey, I'm glad you finished with that because I was just going to clarify um, that these are public schools. These are are, are public. That's schools, right. Right. You know, lest and anyone think that these are kind of exclusive private schools. These are you're you're dealing with, like you said, the general public. And that's so, absolutely right. So I'm coming to my last couple of questions. So I'm curious, so you talked a little bit about, um, when we are talking about K-16, you were kind of thinking about what could we accomplish if we have um, a K-12 classical approach and then the students were able to go to a university that also had a a very strong attention to to core readings, you know, what what could that do? And so I'm curious um, if you have a sense of what kinds of colleges graduates of Great Hearts go to? I'm not sure how many classes you've had the opportunity to graduate so far, but of those that have graduated, what sense do you have of of what kinds of colleges they're going to?
1: Mm -hmm. Well, we are seeing uh, over the last five, remember I told you I've been here for going on eight years this summer, Uh, I've seen cohorts now that average around 500 across our our prep schools, right, so uh, approximately 500 per year over the last five years, uh, four years maybe. Um, But prior to that, all total now maybe around 3,000 alumni, so much smaller classes at the outset, right, when we were formed uh, back in 2003, so the first graduating class of 07 uh, from a single academy. Multiple academies arising from uh, the origin here in Phoenix. I would say that in the last four to five years, I've been watching closely and noticing uh, that a majority of our graduates are attracted to the STEM fields, which doesn't surprise me uh, because they do in fact, receive a full, in their prep school experience, a full seven years of mathematics and the sciences culminating in, in calculus and physics respectively, uh, languages, fine arts, the whole the whole gamut, but with particular emphasis on Uh, mathematics and science, we're seeing students obviously taking a look at what is available, what's of interest, where the jobs are to be found, and of course, just the general social interest, the the sort of society's interest in STEM, STEM, STEM. Um, And and so our graduates are responding in kind. I mean, they're sort of, they're market savvy enough to recognize there's demand here uh, and they want to be a part of that. But to the the sort of second half of your question in terms of what they would want to see, I think our graduates are specifically drawn to universities and colleges, or they will find within a particular university, a large university, like the one down the street here in Phoenix, Arizona State, right? The largest public university in the country. Uh, They will find an honors college, for example, the Barrett Honors College here in Tempe, or they will find sort of a select group or maybe a school department within the university where they can go to continue their advanced study and their focus on primary sources because many of their peers if they haven't gone from a classical or other kind of higher academic uh, 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 prep school will just not be conversant right with uh, with that tradition and so they're finding ways to kind of work around or otherwise locate uh, similar, scholars and teachers with whom they can identify. And so I I, I say that our our graduates will go to honors colleges, they'll find specific departments where you have some kind of emphasis either on interdisciplinary uh, studies or where, for example, political science or philosophy uh, or other humanities are brought together in a serious fashion, particularly as I think you mentioned, where a college or university has uh, maybe a two-year track that focuses on great books. Uh, I find that our students are, are drawn to those things as supplementary if they are going, for example, into a STEM field, right? So they, they try to get a little bit of both and, um, but I would also say that our, our, our students are going to a, into a variety of fields. So I think you'll see them in, in medicine and law, business, uh, you know, marketing. I've seen them come out of programs uh, across the spectrum psychology, right? And sociology, your own field. So I do look forward to not only tracking our own alumni, but discovering how other alumni uh, of classical schools are beginning to give shape or influence to higher education as they become a sizable constituency. I think they're going to expect more uh, from their universities, right? From their, from their institutional homes. Uh, and we hope that the institutions will, will respond uh, favorably to that, that that will sort of help them to elevate their game, because the the, the, the graduates of these classical schools bring more to the table, right? Bring more uh, academic prowess, really.
0: Hmm. All right. Well, I would like to finish up with one last question, uh, which is what kind of parting words of, of encouragement would you give to students and or parents who might still be on the fence about um, you know, a liberal arts focused K-12 education and or a liberal arts focused college education?
1: Mm. Well, I would have to say uh, right off the bat, just to show my cards and to be completely candid, uh, my wife and I chose this for our own children and we have five, three of them are still in one of these classical schools uh, and two graduates who've now gone off to our own local Arizona State. So um, I, I can say honestly that we believe in it uh, for our own family to begin with. So uh, there's a there's a certain um, credibility factor there, I suppose. But I think that as parents uh, make decisions uh, for their children, uh, they should ask themselves if they are looking for an education that will prepare their children for life. By which I mean, colleges is, as I said earlier, something of a rite of passage for most today. We see that as just essential. Now, I think there are challenges to it. And again, we don't have time, this is your closing question, we don't have time to go into all of the challenges that, that present themselves to, to higher education today and whether that's really the best pathway for every, every student. Uh, we know from, from Bill Gates and others, right, of great success, uh, certainly in the tech sector, that it is not necessary that every bright and capable young person uh, go through college, right, in order to uh, achieve success. But that being said, I do believe that to live well, one is equipped much more deeply by a liberal education than by any other form of utilitarian or pragmatic um, college and career readiness, right? This is not just about checking boxes and getting uh, through the gauntlet, as it were, academically, so that you can get on with life. A truly liberal education will invite your young person, your child, to consider the perennial questions of what it means to be human, what it means to live well what it means to be virtuous. And as I think you said early on, this pursuit of wisdom, which has been handed down to us by generations, that's at the heart of a classical education. And I think that most parents, I would say the vast majority of parents, want their children to be wise. Uh, They want them to live well. And to do so has, again, based on the record, and the record goes back thousands of years, has been the result of liberal education, historically, classically conceived. Uh, I think families do want this for their children. They may not know what it's named. They may not have the experience. Again, many of us have not. And yet when they come to see it for what it is, this pursuit of wisdom and a lifelong pursuit at that, uh, that's attractive. And it is in fact uh, a kind of legacy that we give to our children to enhance and to make their lives full.
0: Beautiful, that's a wonderful way to end. Well, I thank you very much for being with us today and for sharing your vast experience and expertise and hope that many people will get much from this conversation. Thank you.
1: It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me.